Good morning, Elmwood Park Bible Church. It is such a joy to worship with you again this morning on uh, Palm Sunday. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, and we'll begin looking at verse 16 in just a moment or two. While you're turning, I would uh, ask that you be in prayer for my wife. Cindy has had bronchitis for about two and a half weeks, and um, she finally has, uh, the coughing has subsided uh, enough that she probably had the best night's sleep last night that she's had in about two weeks, and she was still in bed at like seven this morning, which is um, unusual for her and um, for either of us for that matter. But at any rate, she's she's at home resting and um, pray that you might, uh, uh, or ask that you might pray for her that she'll be uh, healed quickly. She's planning to go see a friend in Arizona in uh, just a week from Tuesday, so uh, she would like to be well when she goes, and I'd like for her to be well. So, And pray for me, too, because I'll be batching it while she's gone. So. <laughs> and if anybody wants to go to lunch or dinner or breakfast, you know, hit me up, let me know. Oh. You know, this morning, and, and welcome back, Dave and, and Barb. You know, I, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the first song we did this morning, I, I texted uh, Dave about, uh, I don't know, probably not more than a month ago, and said, hey, you think we can pull this off by um, Palm Sunday, Easter, and, and uh, you guys did a great job. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm not going to give you a hard time, at least not for the rest of today anyway. Yeah, definitely. You can count on that, my friend. Uh, you know, today, um, one of the topics that's hot everywhere you turn is leadership. It's been that way for a few years. Um, it's hard to um, follow uh, Twitter or just stroll, scroll through Twitter if, uh, if you're following um, news or business, that sort of thing, and not come across the uh, subject of leadership in some way, shape, or form. It's, uh, there's countless articles written about leadership. In fact, a lot of stuff that I uh, read, uh, web articles and that sort of stuff I, I read come from business writers about uh, leadership, and I find a lot of useful principles in their writing that's uh, helpful to particularly church planters because of the responsibility of leadership that comes with starting something new as an entrepreneur. Some of the people I follow on Twitter and actually get notifications from regularly uh, on my phone are guys who write about uh, leadership as it relates to entrepreneurial leadership in particular. And you know, it's not only true in the business world, it's also true in the kingdom. There's actually a website called churchleaders.com that has uh, several articles daily, uh, reports about what's going on amongst uh, leaders in various churches, uh, evangelical churches throughout the U.S. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly hot topic. And I believe it's not just a popular topic, but I believe for the church in particular, it's crucial. It's not just popular, it's not just important, it's crucial. By the way, that word comes from a Latin word that means cross. It, it um, uh, speaks really of a crossroads. And leadership oftentimes determines the, uh, the, the success or the failure of an organization and certainly success of a fail or failure of a local church. That's particularly true, again, amongst church planters. That's one of the reasons I spend a lot of time reading, thinking, talking, and writing about it myself. 
In fact, I believe it's so critically important. I, I uh, shared with someone earlier this week uh, that I have noticed in my years of ministry, and particularly working with church planters, that the having a process for identifying leadership capacity and developing that capacity in individuals in a local church is often something that either leads to the growth and fruitfulness of a church or the lack of it hinders that growth and fruitfulness of a local church. It is, again, I believe, crucial. It's important. It determines uh, whether there is success or failure, however you care to define that. I think biblically it's a matter of fruitfulness and effectiveness. So why is that important to us this morning? Well, I believe it's important as we, uh, in part because this is a local church. Uh, You have identified new leadership that will be arriving soon. You have leaders who have been in place for several years and as, uh, as elder, deacon, teachers, Uh, And also in this local church, as is true in every other local church I've seen, there are those uh, men and women who may not have a position that has some defined authority related to it, but they are nonetheless leaders. They are people that others trust and respect and follow, and they are, regardless again of whether they have a title or not, they are leaders. Well, I think it's critical for us to understand it's not um, uh, biblical leadership is, is somewhat different from leadership in the business world. Again, I think we have a lot to learn from them. But what we find today in Joshua 9 is an example of effective biblical leadership. In Joshua and the other leaders that were around him in the nation of Israel at a critical time, at a crucial time, Uh, in a situation where they had even messed up. As Mike read earlier, you know, they didn't really do their due diligence to find out who these Hivites were and and, uh, where they had come from and that sort of thing. It didn't take them long. It was only three days they discovered they had made a terrible mistake. They had assumed that what had been told them was true. They had extended this uh, trust that was violated. They had been deceived. And I would suspect that most of us have found ourselves at that point in our lives and maybe in the life of our walk with Christ. Somebody has somehow deceived us. Something has, uh, is not what it appeared on the surface. And what happens, I think the test of leadership comes afterwards. You know, there are a lot of, uh, because leadership is a popular topic, there are a lot of assessment tools. There are um, different, uh, there are very lengthy sort of multiple choice assessment tools that people can uh, go through and folks use the answers to that to uh, gain some understanding of leadership. There are simple eyeball tests. One friend of mine in uh, Arizona, I asked him once, so how do you, how do you determine, Brian, who, who you're willing to invest your time in? Because leadership development does take time, energy, and effort. And he said to me, you know, Dennis, I just asked myself this simple question. Am I willing to follow that guy? And he said, if I'm not willing to follow him, I'm not willing to invest in him. And a lot of those decisions come in crucial moments. Beyond those um, simple and effective eyeball tests like my friend Brian uses or 
lengthy assessment processes. One of the most effective ways to gauge the capacity, the maturity, and perhaps identify growth areas in leaders and potential leaders is in the crucible of a situation that is, um, that is unexpected or a mess, if you will, and in this case, a mess of their own making. So this morning, as we look at this matter of biblical leadership and understanding the qualities, and the title I've, I've chosen is, uh, as you might expect, very intentional, Distinguishing Qualities of Biblical Leaders. What sets biblical leaders apart from those who are, A, not leaders, or those who may be leaders in the secular world? What makes a difference in them to distinguish them from the rest of the world? We find five qualities in the text this morning, and I want you to take a quick look at them. Notice with me first that biblical leaders are faithful to covenants. Biblical leaders are faithful to covenants. Verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them, that is the Hivites who had deceived them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And skip down to verse 26. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, that is Joshua, did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not Kill them. Now, if you go back and read the first 15 verses of chapter 9, which I hope you'll maybe do uh, later today, you'll find that, again, these people came. What, what had happened, we've already seen as we've walked. Uh, I, I feel like we're journeying with the children of Israel. As they've crossed the Jordan River, they're in the Promised Land. We've walked with them as the walls of Jericho fell, as they achieved this great victory that no one expected. We find them take a whooping. Because of the sin of one man, we see them recover from that as we did last week. They've defeated Ai. And while there were some who had thought for a moment after that initial defeat that maybe there was an opportunity, the the peoples of the land are once again gripped by fear. And you read in the first 15 verses that there are different approaches to that. There are some who had formed pacts with each other. They were smaller city-states, smaller groups of people, and they decided to band together, and they were going to form a pact to, to fight the Israelites. But the Hivites came up with this scheme and idea. They had given up on the notion that they might be able to beat them, so they are going to trick them. If you can't beat them, how does the old saying go? You join them. And so they um, made themselves look haggard. They took took some worn satchels and that sort of thing that uh, uh, had been laying around. And they, they, they make it appear that they've traveled from some long way off. Because they had already heard, as they expressed to Joshua... That we know that God has given you this land and he's told you to wipe out everybody who's here. And that included us. And we wanted to convince you that we didn't actually live in this land. But we'd come from a long way off and we were going to cast ourselves at your mercy. But they did that again by deceiving them. Trying to convince them that they'd come from someplace they didn't actually come from. And Joshua and the, the other leaders of Israel... 
entered into this covenant, entered into this pact, entered into this treaty of protection. And the Bible tells us explicitly that they did that without seeking counsel from the Lord. So now they find themselves in this situation where they've made this commitment, they discovered that they had been deceived, and what is the result? Well, Joshua doesn't look for some way out of this. He doesn't suddenly begin to make some excuses for uh, being deceived. He doesn't begin to blame them for the wrong that they had done and say, we're just going to slaughter you anyway. No, he remains faithful to the commitment he made. Biblical leaders are faithful to covenants. Again, they were in this mess because of Joshua's own failure. And Joshua understood that. And again, regardless of what the circumstances may have been surrounding it, he is faithful to that agreement. He doesn't take out the frustration of his own failure on them by killing them. And by the way, he would have been justified, it seems, we're told that all the people wanted him to do it. It's like, we've, you know, they tricked us. We're supposed to kill them. Let's wipe them out. The text doesn't tell us, but perhaps some were thinking, Joshua, you jacked this thing up, man. But again, rather than take out his frustration or his regret of his own failure on others, He remains true to the covenant. You know, Jesus said to those would-be followers, the Sermon on the Mount, the same thing, that those who would follow him, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Rather than follow the sort of intricate maze of excuse-making and that sort of thing when you enter into Uh, commitments Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your word be your bond, so to speak. That's a biblical principle. And we see Joshua leading the nation of Israel to do that and to keep that covenant regardless. Even though he'd been deceived, he stuck with it. So how does this apply to us? Friends, there'll be times when we find ourselves in a situation, perhaps we made a commitment that we didn't, um, we didn't seek counsel on from the Lord, or we made a commitment based on information that was um, not provided fully, which is what happened here in both of those cases. Well, friends, if we are going to be biblical leaders, if we're going to be leaders that people should follow, if we're going to have the qualities of biblical leadership, it is crucial that we remain faithful to our covenants. Don't look for a loophole or a foxhole. Don't look for a place to hide. Don't look for a way to get out of it. We stay faithful to covenants. That is not only an effective quality or distinguishing quality of a biblical leader, but an effective way to teach others to do the same. Those of you who are parents 
recognize that your most important role of leadership is in your home. And when you make commitments and covenants, your children see that, they hear that, and they watch you. Be faithful to those covenants if you intend to be a biblical leader. Well, notice also that biblical, biblical leaders are faithful despite popular pressure. Verse 18 again. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Now, friends, with the hindsight of, or or the benefit of of, uh, hindsight, about 3,000 years of it, it's easy for us to applaud them and their, their firm stance. But remember how large the nation of Israel was at this time. Again, they far outnumbered these Hivites and the other people groups that were in the area. And it says the whole congregation murmured against the leaders. We don't like the decision that you've made, Joshua. Again, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but I could imagine there's at least a handful or maybe a great throng of those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who would say, Joshua... This your fault. And they murmur against them. And yet what do they do? They stand strong in the face of that popular pressure. I'm reminded of the very familiar story in Daniel 3 where Daniel's three friends who in the face of pressure both popular and political refused to bow down and worship the golden image that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had made. There was murmuring against them. It could have been because some of the Babylonians were jealous of these Jews who had positions of authority. It may have just been that they wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Uh, to conform to the popular culture. But whatever the reason, they had ratted them out. And in the face of that popular pressure, they stood strong. Of course, you know what happened as a result. They were thrown in the fiery furnace. They were delivered, of course. But we must understand that there is often a price to pay whenever we stand firm against popular pressure. Now, friends, again, I've been in ministry for 23 years, and I can tell you there are a few places that I know in the whole of God's kingdom where popular pressure is more persuasive and more pervasive than in a local church. Now, I can't say that I've seen evidence of that here, but I've certainly seen instances of leadership bowing to pervasive and persuasive public pressure in other churches and other circumstances. My dear friends, again, the important thing is to, to stand on principle 
and then know that whatever the, whatever the pressure, whatever the price, one must live by those convictions, must live with determination, must lead with those convictions, and must lead with determination to stand firm even in the midst of public pressure. Now, one word of caution I would add here, it is critical for biblical leaders to seek wise counsel. Again, that's something that they had failed to do. And it's important to be able to discern the difference between wise counsel and popular pressure. But if counsel has been sought, a decision has been made, and popular pressure comes, a biblical leader must stand firm in the place of that, confident, confident that the outcome will be good in time. Biblical leaders are not only faithful to covenants, not only faithful despite popular pressure, but biblical leaders also seek the glory of God. Again in verse 18, But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Verse 19 is the key here. We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Joshua and the other leaders of Israel understood that swearing by the personal name of God, and remember when we see that Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's referring to the personal name of God, the covenant name that he gave to his people. And they say, we have by that name sworn to them that we will protect them and that they can live among us. And what they understood is that all the actions that came after that were reflective of their commitment to the Lord Himself. They understood that whatever happened as a result, whether they stayed true to that promise or whether they violated that promise, that reflected on God Himself. Positively or negatively. They understood this, of course, because Leviticus 19.12 makes clear that to swear falsely by the name of the Lord is to profane His name. That is to cause others to view the name of the Lord with contempt. And what Joshua and the other leaders were saying to the popular pressure amongst them is that if we bow to this pressure, if we do what you want us to do, if we slaughter them at this point after having made this covenant, this causes others to view the name of our Lord with contempt. Again, even the corporate world understands the importance of honoring our word. Recently, I looked at one company's website. It's not a company that's well known, but they actually offer services in developing business strategies and and improving processes for some of the largest names uh, in the Fortune 500 that you would recognize. And in their code of business conduct and ethics, 
something that is binding, it says on their website, of all their companies, directors, officers, employees. It says, our reputation for integrity is dependent upon ensuring that we keep our promises and thus the company takes its contractual obligations very seriously. They understand that their employees and those particularly in the roles of leadership in their company, their actions reflect on the company's reputation. And it doesn't have to be in the corner office. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've driven around town and I'll see a van cut somebody off with a big name on the side of it. And I I often wonder, is the man or woman who is responsible for that company, who owns it, whose name is on the side of that van, do they understand and know what this guy is doing to people out here and how it affects their business? My dear friends, the work of the Lord is far more important than any corporate governance, any corporate reputation. Whether a HVAC contractor wins or loses business over how his drivers drive, not to minimize any of that, but our work is far more crucial. And when we call the name of Christ, when we invite others to call us by His name, when we take His name, when we claim to the world that we are joint heirs with Jesus, when we call ourselves Christians or Christ-like, our actions reflect on Him. Biblical leaders are not looking out merely for themselves, not protecting their own business, not even frankly protecting their own reputation, but recognizing that everything we do reflects on the one whose name we bear and we seek His glory. Biblical leaders understand that that is our motivation. That that is the the way people view our Lord is based on how we behave and what we do and the decisions we make and how we lead people and, frankly, where we lead people. Biblical leaders seek the glory of God. Fourthly, I want us to see that biblical leaders recognize accountability to God. In verse 20, This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. You know, the first motivation we see them share is that, hey, God's reputation is affected by what we do at this point and how we keep the covenants that we have made. But they also understand that if they don't fulfill that covenant that they've made in the name of the Lord, that they would face His wrath. Now friends, I don't know about you, but just thinking about incurring the wrath of God, it's, by the way, it's part of what has made me really, 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 really super passionate about what happened at the cross, which we will celebrate on Friday. 
You see, as Jesus died in our place, he took the wrath of the Father for our sin. It is hard for me to get my mind wrapped around the intensity of the wrath of the Father against not only my sin, but the sin of every human of all time. And that's what he faced. And while I don't have any reason to believe that that Joshua and these leaders understood in that time and that place the enormity of what Jesus would face on the cross in years ahead, they clearly understood that the wrath of God was real. They had already felt a taste of it in the defeat at Ai. And Joshua says, listen, we've made this covenant based on the name of the Lord himself. We are concerned about his reputation. And we also understand the reality that if we're not faithful to that, there is a price to pay. The terse words of James, the half-brother of Jesus, make it clear that Christian leaders, and specifically in the text there in James 3.1, teachers will face a stricter judgment. Those are sobering words. You know, when Cindy and I were in Arizona and planting a church, I was... I have been blessed with a lot of friends in ministry, a lot of places. It took me seven years to finish my seminary degree, so I met a lot of guys, you know. Slow rolling it through seminary, I, I developed a lot, of, a lot of relationships, a lot of friendships. And as I would talk to them about planting the church in Arizona, frequently they would say to me, man, it must be nice not to deal with the traditions that are there, not to deal with the established structures, not to have this person or that person who's been there forever telling you what you ought to do or what's right or what's not right, navigating all of that sort of thing. And I would always tell them that, you know, there is a certain amount of freedom that comes with planting a church. You don't have those traditions to navigate. But I also told them, I said, you know, while that freedom's nice, the one thing that's never lost on me is the weight of the responsibility. I said, you know, in planting a church, and, you know, God blessed us with, with so many people who were previously unchurched. When I handed over the leadership of Cross Point, on any given Sunday, somewhere between 70 to 80% of the people that were there were previously unchurched people. That's what I'd hoped to do. I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. And even looking back, I'm not sure I could tell you, except it was the grace and mercy of God. He made it happen. But I also understood the weight of responsibility that brought. You know, as I told my friends... If somebody's Christology, that is the doctrine of Christ, is jacked up, I don't have an unfaithful Sunday school teacher to point to and say he didn't do his job. If we had people who didn't understand what happened at the cross, the the, the importance of atonement, 
the validity of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross? I said, there's nobody I can blame for that. That's on me. If their ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, what the local church ought to be and what the local church ought to be about. I said, there's no history of tradition. You know, the church I'd left before we moved to Arizona was 235 years old. I said, I can't blame it on two centuries of somebody messing things up. It's my responsibility. And biblical leaders, I would say to you that again, regardless of whether you have a role that is defined by the church or whether you are one that people simply follow, recognize the weight of that and recognize the responsibility that comes from that and recognize the reality that what we teach others, and how we lead others produces accountability to God. And frankly, I would say that's even more important for those who don't have position, for those who are trusted and go to. Let us use that influence well to lead people to understand what it means to follow Jesus. To understand what it means to trust Him, not just for our eternal future, but in our temporal life, in our workplace, in our relationships with our neighbors and our family. Let us recognize the accountability that we have before God to shape others into Christ-likeness. Biblical leaders get that. They recognize that. And they exercise that stewardship well. And friends, even for long-established churches like Elmwood Park Bible Church, recognize that when we have unbelievers or previously unchurched people come in, even if they're only here for one Sunday, the things that we say, the way we interact, the way we represent Christ the things that we demonstrate through our words and through our singing and through our actions, all that we demonstrate to them that are important to us, let us recognize our accountability before God for them. Let us also recognize our accountability to God for those around us who do not yet know Christ. One of the reasons I can't help but weep for my neighbors who do not yet know Christ is because of the weight of responsibility I feel for their souls. Biblical leaders are accountable to God and they know it. And the final quality I want us to see is that biblical leaders lead God's people to obey God. In verse 21, and the leader said to them, let them live so that they become, so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Verse 23, now therefore, it says Joshua speaking to the Hivites, now therefore you are cursed And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of 
of my God. In verse 27, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Friends, it's important for us to understand as Joshua has uh, the Hivites become these servants amongst them. It's not just a matter of Joshua um, finding a different way to express his frustration of his own failure. What Joshua is doing is leading the nation of Israel to live consistently with the direction given in the law of God in Deuteronomy 20. As God gives that instruction, he tells them, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all of its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not cities of the nations here. So Joshua was simply leading the people to live consistently with God's direction. He simply led them to obey God. Friends, no biblical God-called, God-ordained leader of any position, whether defined and formal as pastor, elder, deacon, teacher, whatever, or informal position. No biblically, no biblical leader, God called God ordained person, is going to lead you to disobey God unless he or she is already in a state of disobedience. I want you to hear that again. No biblical leader, no God called God ordained leader is ever going to lead you to be disobedient to God unless he or she's already in a state of disobedience. Again, going back to my experience planting, I would often say to the people at Cross Point, hold me accountable. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to make sure I don't take you some crazy whacked out place, the only way you're going to know that is if you study the word for yourself Seek to grow yourself, become a follower of Jesus, a disciple, be discipled and disciple others. Learn and grow. The history is filled with those who have taken people in wayward directions. But friends, they were already in disobedience themselves. Biblical leaders lead God's people to obey God. So I want to call your attention quickly to the bottom line. It's simply this. Biblical leaders follow Jesus. Biblical leaders follow Jesus. We don't need to make other people like us. We need to lead people to become like Jesus. 
We don't need people to act and think and behave like we do. We need people to live with the values and express those to others like Jesus. Biblical leaders follow Jesus and biblical leaders lead others to follow Jesus. And biblical leaders seek the glory of God. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?